Hey guys, Gregory Haddock here. If you are an active listener of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, please consider donating to the show so that we can continue to improve it. EOC is consistently ranked as one of the top conservation podcasts out there. And at a time like this, the work this incredible group of people is doing has never been more important. Donating as little as $1, $5, 10 or $25 an episode will set us up for lasting success and enable us to provide a better listening experience, increased production value, and real-world wins for the planet through conservation work when we all do it together. And as if that wasn't enough, your gift will come with additional perks for you personally, like bonus content, Q&A, t-shirts, partnership with EOC, and basically bragging rights to all your friends and family. Please head over to www patreon.com backslash wildlands collective to get more information that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n We all have to go through it, though a few of us are ready when the time comes. This event often reveals both test and testament of the human spirit in how we respond. Just how exactly we process those moments is already egregiously difficult. A plethora of emotion grips us from beginning to end and pulls us all throughout the spectrum of what's human. It's enough to make us feel a little bit crazy, right? And perhaps the hardest part is that any semblance of closure can elude us for years. If it ever comes at all, it's likely one of the most difficult things any one of us will ever have to confront. And yet, something each and every one of us must confront in our own lives at least once. As if that weren't hard enough. Once a loved one passes, we are confronted with real decisions about end of life. Where will we be placed to rest? Did mom want to be cremated or buried? What kind of coffin or urn will we purchase for grandpa? And as if we couldn't feel any worse in this moment, it turns out there's a financial incentive for many funeral homes to upsell families and friends in their time of mourning. And the price tag can be staggering. According to a Business Insider article from October 2017, dreadfully titled, It's Gotten a Whole Lot More Expensive to Die in America, the cost of burying the deceased has risen 95.1% since 1986, with the average cost of a casket climbing as high as 230%. Former funeral home family service counselor D. Gray explains. I was trained specifically to find out how much money you had to spend and to spend it all for you because I collected a 30% commission. So if you had $20,000 funeral policy, insurance policy, it was my job to try to get you to spend $20,000. People in the funeral business are taught to take advantage of your emotions with a very, very plain look on our face, something like this. Yes, ma'am. I understand. It's going to be all right. 
Is that going to be credit or cash? It's about that money. It's about that money. It's about that money. So wait, you're probably thinking, this is good to know, something I, I want to know and probably need to know. And while this is in some very weird way about a morbid kind of conservation, shouldn't you be talking about recycling or something? And I am. What? Yes. Imagine if when you die, the immediate legacy you pass on to your family wasn't a bill, but actually a precious gift of yourself back to the earth. My guest on this installation of the Eyes on Conservation podcast has not only seen the profit-driven side of deaths from the inside, but was able to break free of something she saw as misleading, opportunistic, and ultimately serving the needs of neither the mourners nor the deceased. Elizabeth Fournier is the owner and funeral director of Cornerstone Funeral Services, an institution dedicated to reducing the unnecessary costs of funeral services, restoring monetary and economical justice to clients, the deceased, and planet Earth by offering the greenest practices possible when laying loved ones to rest. Her paradoxically radical and refreshingly simple methods have led her closest family and friends to dub her the Green Reaper. I'm Gregory Haddock, and this is the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Elizabeth visited me from her converted goat barn funeral home in Boring, Oregon, just outside Portland, to tell EOC listeners what it really means to go green. Has anybody ever said to you, this is the most Portland thing I've ever heard? <laughs> well, you know, you are you are so hip. Yeah, Portlandia. <laughs> Actually, it's a fascinating point of view because that's really, you know, that is that is true. I think I would actually say, you know, working in the in the funeral industry the way I do, I guess you could put me in more of the cooler mortician category. So thanks a lot. I feel better about myself. Okay, good, good. Well, and I'm a big fan of Portlandia, so I could definitely see this taking place on the show. Um, I think I it's great. Say, luckily, I live in a state where we love to recycle. We try not to eat off styrofoam, and people are a little bit more conscientious about things. So yeah, I guess what I'm doing is rather Portland. That's a very interesting way to look at it. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. I'm the owner and undertaker of Cornerstone Funeral Services, and that is actually in a place called Boring, Oregon. And how long have you been doing that for? I've been an undertaker for 29 years now. I started living in a cemetery where I was a nightkeeper. I've actually been at the parlor where I am now for almost 15 years, and it's just been such an amazing pleasure to be working out of a converted goat barn, a repurposed one right there in the middle of the country. So I am on 40 acres out in Boring, and when people come into the chapel, they can see that there's a place where the hay used to be stored. There's actually a hayloft. It's fun. It's really nice to be in a repurposed building, because I know building is just really so hard on the land. And it's wonderful, because I am actually a goat person and have goats, and it's really fun to be where I am. I really love telling the story to people. So is that kind of where you grew you. up then, or...? I'm a city person. I've lived in San Jose, California, and born there, lived there till I was four. 
from Portland, Oregon, most of the rest of my days. And now I'm in Boring, and it's so small, and it's just so rural. And it's really nothing but me and the mom-and-pop gas station slash little mercantile across the street. They've got these great tables inside made out of wagon wheels. And I find myself sitting there on Saturday night sometimes just talking to the locals about pigs, about uh, grain, you know, about the, the temperature, the weather, what their dog is doing. And it's such a different part of life and it's a real different reality than I ever thought. If we had to make the five-year plan in grade school or high school, I would have never found myself living so remotely. But now that I'm here, I just don't see myself going back to the big city. Do you find that the work that you do is pretty well received in your community? I do. And I wasn't really sure about that because I came in as a female who was from a city. And right there, I thought that might have been two strikes against me. Um, the man who actually started the funeral home, it's his property. He had the goat barn. He decided to repurpose this into a funeral home. And pretty soon, the mortuary board came out and said, sir, this is great that you want to make this low-cost thing an entity in the country. However, we really need someone licensed to come in and run the place. That's where I was found and where I came from. So they all knew that as the Walls place or the Walls barn. And then all of a sudden there's this funeral home and it's a female and she's from the city and she's got these cuckoo crazy ideas of maybe allowing people to be buried on their own property. And I wouldn't say there was suspicion necessarily, but it was just something different and people were pretty gracious about it. So I really appreciated that. Were they actively seeking somebody out that was in this line of work? He just needed a licensed mortician. And what he had said when he found me is he said he's looking for somebody who has no past of any sort of issues. He didn't want to have anybody kind of come bring their headache out to the country or have somebody who had any sort of scandalous funerary life before, just someone who had a clean reputation, somebody who was known for being honest and just doing things decently. So I thought that was pretty good that uh, we talked and he said, okay, you're the right fit. So I, I was always very flattered by that. Tell me a bit about what you do and what it is that makes your practice so unique and I want to preface this by saying that um, I think it's great, but I also want to come at it from a little bit of a skeptic's perspective. I'm really more over interested in kind of expanding that and answering some of those questions for people who may think that this is just the, the craziest thing they've ever heard. Sure. And I appreciate you allowing me to talk about it. I also appreciate that point of view as well, because it allows people to really hear what they need to know to make their own uninformed. <laughs> it allows people to make their own informed decision. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's get into the the meat and potatoes about it. Um, tell us tell us what it is that you do that is so unique to uh, funeral services. Ultimately, I allow people to do whatever they want to do as long as it falls under the guise of what is legal as far as a form of disposition or way to treat a loved one in the state of Oregon. And that's a pretty wide berth, and there's a lot that can be done in that. And that goes so many ways, such as in the state of Oregon, we have a cremation legal. That's a water-based cremation. And I love to educate people about that and have them make a choice if that or the standard cremation fits their lifestyle better. I let people know that they're welcome to build their own caskets or make their own urns. 
Um, something else that happens here a lot in Oregon, many cemeteries are open to natural burial. So I can go ahead and talk about that and give those choices, as well as where I am in rural Clackamas County in Oregon, families can be buried on their own property. So I'm more than happy to tell people about that if they have any interest. I'm there to answer their questions, support them, put them at ease. And then if they want to go a step further, I can physically help them with all of that. Is being buried on your own property, is that pretty unique to Oregon? Or is that, do most states allow some sort of form of that? Well, green burial as a concept, something also called natural burial, is a very non-unique thing, meaning about 150 years ago, this is what we all did in the United States. We all would have somebody in the churchyard or our backyard or in the local cemetery down the street, and we would lovingly open up a space in the soil. We'd lay them to rest, and they would most likely be in some sort of a shroud or maybe a basic wood coffin made by the local artisan. And that's pretty natural. There would be no embalming fluid. There would be no metal casket. There wouldn't be all of these things that we're putting in the soil today, even including fertilizer, things like that. So having somebody be able to be buried on their own property, all states, how it reads for them is natural burial is legal. We just have to figure out where we can do it. Now, my state says it depends per county what their rules are as far as having a home burial. Some of the counties in Oregon say that's fine and they have their rules. Others say, no, that's something we're not going to allow. Other states, such as the state right above me in Washington, their rule reads that they really don't want private land burials to happen unless somebody owns their own island. And that might sound a little bit crazy for somebody coming who's not quite on the a coast where there are a lot of archipelagos or little land masses that are separated there in the water. But we have thousands of little islands throughout Washington. So that's not so ostentatious of an idea. So states have different ideas of what they want. Most states definitely prefer that you're buried in a cemetery or a natural burial ground someplace that is regulated by the state that operates like a standard cemetery and has graves that are sold. And there is a map and charts and money goes into an endowment fund and everything is regulated more. But we're finding as time goes on, people are asking questions and what people want, their voices are being heard and those requirements are really being answered. What does a traditional funeral look like for maybe somebody that hasn't um, had that first person interaction with a funeral home? If you've seen in movies or seen in TV where you're at a funeral home or a church and there'll be mostly a minister up front saying some dour words, there'll be a really lovely lacquered casket or metal casket draped with a bunch of flowers and people are all wearing black and then there's going to be um, some time there. From there, the hearse most likely will bring that casket out to some sort of a graveyard. The graveyard is green, it's pristine, it has some headstones upright or flat or what have you, and then from there that casket will be lowered into a grave which has a grave box or a grave liner underneath it that you really can't see. So a traditional funeral is going to be most likely something where the person is embalmed inside the casket. The casket is most likely going to be metal or some sort of hardwood, harvested wood, fine wood, 
And then from there, that casket is going to be lowered into a grave, which is lined by concrete or cement or some sort of a stainless steel burial container. So there's three levels there of toxins. There's three levels there of non-biodegradable elements. And that's what we've been doing. And when you see on TV, you'll see a commercial that says something like the standard funeral costs $10,000. What they're talking about is, yes, you have to buy that expensive casket. There's the preparation. There's going to be the services. There's also going to be the land at the cemetery that you're going to have to take care of and buy the deed and pay for all the accoutrements there. So that can be pretty darn spendy. Yeah. So what does an average uh, or traditional funeral cost? What, What does that price tag look like? It really depends on where you live and how expensive property is. It also depends on if you're going to a corporate funeral home or a mom and pop funeral home. So prices, I would say for your standard funeral, probably across the board, you might be looking for maybe eight to $10,000 might be the average because it could be less, it could be more. And a lot of the points that play the most Part in that is how expensive of a casket are you going to choose, and then how expensive of a grave site are you going to choose. And and I was unfamiliar that there were so many different layers that went into um, the ground before a casket is actually laid in. You mentioned some of the toxins that might be uh, the the environment might be exposed to. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit? If you're embalmed you're going to have quite a bit of formaldehyde inside you. There's about three pounds of formaldehyde for most people. All the formaldehyde that is in the ground nowadays equates to a, you know, a huge Olympic size swimming pool out there. And that's, that's a lot to think about annually of what we have as far as the groundwater being contaminated with the embalming fluid. If you're going to be placed into a metal casket, there is going to be all the resources of the metal, plus the metal doesn't, it degrades, it doesn't biodegrade, but it degrades and the metal and everything leaches back into the soil, as well as the spray on varnishes that go onto the casket. Those are some of the EPA's 50 top hazardous chemicals that are out there. And if you're going to be placed into a traditional cemetery space, they're going to ask for a burial vault or a grave box. People aren't always familiar with that, but that's going to be a container that allows the soil and the grass to be placed back onto the grave and merely for the heavy equipment that rolls by, either for the tractor or for the lawnmowers, everything will stay input solid and you'll have that nice even grass. And that's really the only reason for that is so nothing le- nothing sinks, everything stays level as it is. So people are asking questions and realizing that what if I don't want to be embalmed? Is that a state rule? Nope. It's not a state rule. What if I don't want to buy an expensive metal casket? Again, not a state rule. And then as far as cemeteries, cemeteries now are deciding, well, yes, we want to have the grave liner. Other cemeteries are saying, no, I guess it's really not that important to us. And if people want to come and not pay for that or not have that, I guess we're okay with that too. As far as embalming fluid, it's formaldehyde. I mean, back in the day, it was arsenic and mercury and soap and water. So it's really one hazardous set of chemicals swapped out for another hazardous set of chemicals. And it's a really big carcinogen. It's hazardous to the environment as well as the person doing the embalming. We always forget there's actually somebody doing the job, not just the deceased individual, which is having the stuff inside of them. If you feel like this maybe is just one person's opinion, 
Just let Adam Conover of Adam Ruins Everything give you a little bit more details on how this whole thing works. Embalming is totally pointless. Why would you need to be preserved right before they bury you in the dirt? Isn't the whole point to decompose? Excuse me, embalming gives dignity to the deceased. Yes, it's respectful. Respectful? What do you think embalming is? It's like a spa day for a dead body. Exactly, don't correct her. Embalming is the least respectful thing you can do to a body. First, the jaw is wired shut, the eyes are sealed with glue, then the internal organs are punctured and drained through a hole in the abdomen. After that, they pump the arteries full of formaldehyde and stuff the internal cavities full of cotton. Okay, stop, enough, 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 enough. I don't want to puke in front of a dead body. Fair enough, but the entire process is a pointless waste of time. Because even though funeral directors tell their vulnerable, grieving customers, embalming is necessary if you want an open casket, and it keeps the body safe and sanitary. None of it is true. Refrigeration is cheaper and just as effective as embalming. And the World Health Organization states that dead bodies pose nearly no health risks to the living. It's completely safe to touch them. Here, watch. <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, but it's still safe. Which is ironic because formaldehyde isn't safe. It's a carcinogen. Why do we still do this? Just one reason. These guys charge a grave load of money to do it. Let's not talk about the body so In much. your professional opinion, and maybe even your personal opinion, what does the ideal funeral look like if you're trying to do this as green as possible? Well, I think a perfect setup, and not everybody has the situation, is if you and your family or whomever have lived someplace for a period of time and you have a little bit of land and you are able to, your horse or your dog or your cat or your gopher has been buried on the land, and it seems very natural that people and animals um, that you love stay there on the land, and several generations are probably going to own this land. If you can just prepare a space and lovingly place your person there after you have the person possibly pass away at home, under the care of friends and family. If for preparation, merely you're going to have some bathing, maybe dress them into an outfit they love or not, place them maybe in a natural sheet or some sort of other biodegradable material you have around the house, bring them out to the space in the yard, feast on your vegetables in the garden. I mean, that's pretty environmentally friendly. That's pretty zero resources. And also the cost, that's not too much. You're not looking at much unless maybe you're buying beer for the guys who are digging the grave or maybe putting some fuel into the backhoe. That's, you know, that's pretty darn inexpensive. That's definitely you doing it yourself. You're very hands-on. Friends and family have say and control, and then they're really doing it their way as well as having their loved one there in their own space that they can really just know that this person for future generations is going to go on. Their body is going to give back to the soil, and they're going to be able to enjoy the fact grandma's out there underneath the blackberry bush. Is there any issue um, health-wise or other that having a body in the yard could have for vegetables? No. If you're embalmed, yes, because that does leak. If you're embalmed, then you're looking at all that formaldehyde that's going to get back into the soil, which isn't the best idea. A natural body is really just so healthy. And this is, even goes for people who 
have, you know, smoked their whole life, um, don't treat their body like the temple that it should be. Your body cleanses itself and takes care of itself, and it really nourishes the earth and the planet and the soil. So all that juicy goodness inside of us really gives back, and it allows us to be a tree or be part of the biosphere and the ecosystem, and you're really giving yourself as a real special gift. It's that idea of going green. You're truly going green as giving yourself as a gift, going back to the planet and the environment. And I think that's just an amazing concept to think about. It is an amazing concept to think about. Um, and in some ways, it almost, I hate to say this as a skeptic, but it, it almost sounds too good. Is it? Is there Are there drawbacks to this? Sure. If you decide that your family is no longer going to live on that land, then you're going to need to sell the land and you do have to disclose that human remains are buried on the land. It's not always a drawback because some people will say, oh, okay, well, cool, that's great, um, that's fine, and you know, they buy the property and life goes on. There's also a whole other segment of Americans who would say, ooh, that place means it's probably haunted or I'm not comfortable knowing that Bob is in the backyard. And there could be the chance of the value of your property possibly could go down. You could also possibly have a hard time selling. Um, you could have the new owners come along and decide that, no, you cannot visit on mom's birthday and bring her flowers. And as a matter of fact, we don't really want mom to be here. So we're going to build um, a really big shed out there and we're going to put down a really big concrete pad foundation. And then this is really out of our sight. It's removed. There's the cross that you built for the burial marker. We're going to move that. I mean, it really is someone else's property. So what I tell people is if you're going to be in your yard, then you're really dedicating yourself or your loved one to the soil, and that's really what's happening there. You're not going to consider, I suppose you could if you want to, but the reality of exhuming somebody to take them with you, you know, it's not in the best intentions to do. It makes more sense for them to lay where they are and to just be at peace um, and not to disturb them. And so just being at peace with this is where they're going to rest and this is where they're going to be. Just that mindset, I think, it helps ease a lot of the burden. Yeah. As, as far as other issues, what there could be, well, people tend to think that six feet under is where you need to dig to. Really, three feet is fine because that way you get involved with all of the fungi and all of the, the permaculture under the land that's going on. That's where you really need to be to be the most useful. I suppose if you only buried somebody two foot deep and you were someplace where the wind blew a lot and there was soil erosion, then sure, you might be a little too close to the surface. Animals might be able to smell your loved one. But I think that's more of a a non-reality because we do tend to think about we need to bury our person deep enough. I've never seen a situation where somebody just dug a bit with a shovel and said, ah, that'll do. That's good enough. So I think people really take special precaution if they're going to be doing it this themselves. It really is quite an important undertaking for the family. So they do consult somebody like myself who can walk them through these things. They do buy my book. People do consult the internet, other people who have done this, all of those things. And people really tend to get it right the first time. And, and six feet is too deep. 
in most cases. Yeah, it really is too deep. And that's something that, you know, it's it's a something we did back in the day, and that's fine. I think that that's been people worried about um, grave robbers coming along, digging up people's jewelry and their special sacred crosses and all of these things. But I think that we've learned, especially if you're not going to have a double-depth grave, just going down to where everything is happening under the soil is where we want your loved one to be. Right, right. Uh, okay, so embalming fluid can affect this process if you are trying to bury your loved one in this uh, case. Uh, is that also, are there similar effects for cremation in, in terms of how that might affect uh, vegetation or other plants in the area? Cremation is a whole other ball of wax, and it's definitely, I'm glad you asked about it, because it's it's, it's something which is, um, we're finding out is not so good. A lot of the baby boomers, people born between 1946 and 1964, thought cremation would be the way to go, because that way you're not buying the 3,200 square foot piece of land for the grave. You're not buying that fancy casket. You're not taking up resources to do these things. Hey, man, I'm just going to be cremated. I'm going to be scattered to the universe. I'm going to be set free, or I can be sprinkled in my rose bushes or planted or a tree can come or all those things. What we're finding out through soil samples and testing of the cremains is we're finding out that these cremains, they are nutrient deficient, and they're really high in salt, and ultimately they don't biodegrade. So people who have sprinkled these on a plant or even planted them in the ground and thought maybe they would uh, have their garden cabbage or something come up from it because mom liked her cabbage, they're realizing that the cremains are really leaching so much of the water and the nutrients out of the soil, things aren't growing. And I know that's really hard for people when families say to me, but I want my loved one to be a tree and I really want to, I have this bush and we're going to dig and we're going to scatter the cremains inside the hole and then we're going to put some soil, then we're going to put down this root ball and have this beautiful apple tree. I really have to talk to them pretty straight about that because they've already had the death of their dad. They really don't need to also have the death of that tree. And that does happen, and it's a secondary death. And I think that's very emotional for people. You feel like you failed dad because you really thought those crispy apples would be growing, you'd be baking pies in his honor at Thanksgiving, and you find out that you really can't sustain the roots, you can't sustain the tree because there's no nutrients. And anything that was nutritious is getting robbed. So cremains, no, it's not your best bet. People scatter them, and that's fine. The safest place to put cremains really are in the water. They really go kind of go down to the bottom of the ocean, and everything kind of swirls and mixes around. So you're not going to have that dense area of eight pounds of ash. You're going to have that sort of all over mixed around. That's probably your better choice. Let's just kind of walk through this a little bit. Like if somebody had the very keen interest on having their remains become a tree— in the future or be given to the livelihood of a tree, what would be the process to make that happen? The two things I would suggest is the raking of ashes, which would be if you want to spread some, really, really, really integrate them into the soil, rake them all the way through, get them where they're really mixed. And again, they're kind of far and few between spread out. There's also another product called Let Your Love Grow that's made by a scientist, and that soil interacts decently with the the cremains. It really has a different pH level, so it can 
you know, adjust itself and work out where some things can grow from there. So that's what I would suggest. But if somebody really wanted to allow their cremains to give back or to be able to plant and grow something, then I would highly suggest they take care of their cremation the water-based way. And I would love to chat about that because that is such a huge thing that people aren't always aware of. And it's um, there's many states now who are saying, yeah, the flame cremation is one thing, but water cremation is something else. And it's got such a zero carbon footprint. It's doing some pretty good things out there. Oh, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, I'm just curious if you were to bury an entire body uh, without formaldehyde or um, any kind of cremains, could you still do that under a tree? Yes. Oh, yes, because that's a big difference because there's so much inside you that can give back. If you're just having cremains and all you're having is your, it's just your bone structure, which has been burnt to ash, and that's all you're planting. You're not giving anything. If you're giving a whole body, that's nutritious and delicious. Yeah, and what, how long how long would physical remains of a body be in the soil if there was a tree planted on top of it? Well, that is such a broad question because oh, of the factors. No, it's a great question. People ask that all the time. They'll want to know about decomposition. You know, it really depends on so many factors. What time of year is somebody buried? Is it going to be where the tundra is cold or is it not cold at all? We're also going to depend on the person who passed away. Um, were they found days later? Um, is this an immediate burial? How large was the person? Are they pretty much skeletal? Was this person 400 pounds? You know, you kind of can see where I'm going from there. It also depends on sure. the soil. Is this a rocky outcrop? Is this sandy beach soil? So, you know, what did the person eat? Did they love McDonald's every single day? Were they eating granola? Um, hard to say. Interesting. Okay, so there are just so many <laughs> factors that play into that. Right. I think people could kind of can Google it, maybe get an estimate. But, you know, I'm always have a hard time to really guess because there are people who say, well, I'm going to do this. But if I decide that I'm going to move in six months, I'm taking grandma with me. And, you know, I don't know what the state of grandma will be at that point because of so many factors. So it's hard to speculate. It's hard to say, oh, those will just be bones at that point. You'll be fine. Or it's pretty much you're going to have grandma. Um, now, I've heard of other decomposition processes where you're able to possibly turn that body into more of a soil before you plant it. Is that something that you can uh, speak to or um, kind of educate me on and audience on? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's something in the state of Washington, which is a really big deal. And that's been something that we're talking about. And that's the idea of composting yourself. And we, Washington legislature has ruled this as, yes, this is something that they're going to allow to happen. However, this hasn't happened yet. It will be probably 2020, 2000, somewhere in there that they'll go ahead and be able to have that take place. Now, that's a matter of having your body laid into... Um, some soil, some chips, something very natural, and then your body technically recomposing. And that's what the company is called. It's recomposed. They call it recomposition. 
your body then will take maybe five years to completely break down to being complete in the soil. And then the family can have the soil back to put in their garden or to plant things or do whatever they want to do. So the first adapter is in the state of Washington. They really want to have one of these buildings, maybe even somewhere you know, in Seattle. And they love that idea. It's the idea of turning human remains into nutrient-rich earth. Interesting, but it's still not legal. Well, it's legal in the sense that it has gone through all of the steps in the state of Washington. It has been lobbied for a long time. It's been on the bill. Governor Jay Inslee has written it in. So, yes, it is now legal, but it has to be off the ground. So they're really saying they want the first composting facility really to be on target to be a reality by 2023. So now that it's legal, they can take the further steps to make this now happen. Just like most things in life, even when they voted in marijuana or whatever, it wasn't that day you can run down to the store. They had to then build stores and license stores and kind of go through the steps of making things happen. So she has Kate Spade, Katrina Spade is the woman who is taking care of all this. And she's the one, this is her brainchild. There's a wonderful Actually, there's two now really great TED Talks she's made about this, but she's designed a system that will function really like a composting container. It's the idea of that bodies will be placed in a bed of biological remnants, like wood chips and straw, real natural fibrous material. And in about a month or so, the bodies and the wood chips, they will just steadily decompose. They'll turn into soil. And over time, they can be removed and used by people. So we'll see what happens. I've been asked if this is going to be happening in Oregon because we are really right there with Washington hand in hand for being into our recycling and being into our green state of mind. Hard to say. Um, I think people will probably wait and see what happens in Washington and go from there. Well, tell us a little bit more then about how to, I believe you called it um, water cremation. Right. So there's another form of cremation, and this is something which has been around for quite a while. There was the Mayo Clinic back in the day that would use this process for animals, and um, the, I think Ohio was the first state who legalized this, and it's the same sort of thing. It took off in Ohio, and people thought, well, let's just see what happens there, and we'll go on and go from there. So it's the idea of rather the high heat of the flame it is the pressurized water. And if you think about a kind of a capsule, if you will, kind of a star tracky looking capsule, it's a matter of having your loved one um, in this sort of mesh wire basket. You can see them and say goodbye to them and spend time with them and allow them to be rolled over to where this capsule is, place them in this. And then from there, they'll move into a machine which has coils which are heated up and then the body will have some potassium chloride and some water, and it's this nice, gentle water bath, and ultimately it breaks down the tissues of the body. It gets you down to a skeletal form, and then those skeletal remains are made a little bit smaller into cremains, and in the same amount of time, you have an urn back to the family with cremated remains, which are called the same, but they look different, they smell different, and there's a more abundant amount of them. So if somebody was going to plant something in their yard, I would suggest using these because all of the toxins and the harsh elements are all washed out of those. What you're getting back is really amazingly pure. If you're thinking Miss Fournier is just some outlier in the boonies of Oregon, 
Think again. She was even invited to be a TEDx speaker. The truth is, as an undertaker, I assist the living far more than the dead. Over the years, I've learned death is here to teach us about loss, about letting go, but most importantly, about living. And perhaps one of the most important facts of living is understanding that one day each one of us will die. Most likely while you've been here on planet Earth, you've lived responsible, sustainable, conscientious lives. So I challenge you, why not continue that trend until the end? My dream is that green burials become the go-to choice for life's last stop. And I believe when we rebrand the narrative around death, one day going green will be considered the standard and our last great heroic act of environmental volunteerism. Thank you. Is, is there any part of you that feels... I don't know, like a rich irony in the fact that uh, people have been dying for a very long time, and yet we're still making these kind of technological advancements or social advancements in how we bury our loved ones? Well, it's weird how it all transitioned over time. What we did was, again, like I said before, we would keep somebody at home, they'd pass away, we would have them in the churchyard or in the yard, and it was more the ceremony of it. It was the breaking the bread, it was the religious clergy, it was those things. What we did with the body kind of, you know, we take we took turns as a family to say goodbye, and then we laid them to rest, and it was very simple. So during the Civil War, we had a scenario where there was these boys that were soldiers that were really all over the place fighting for the country, and they were killed, families wanted them home. There wasn't any sort of refrigeration on trains, so to preserve bodies out in the battlefields, they came up with this idea of embalming, and that's where doctors were teaching, and this was happening. So bodies were getting preserved, they were getting on trains, they were going back home for burial. Right around that time, our beloved president, Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated. And people really wanted to, they couldn't believe he was dead for one thing. They wanted to see him and they really wanted to pay their respects. So he was going to be on a funeral train. So the same process, there wasn't refrigeration, he was embalmed. And they got him to a point where he went over, um, you know, 12 different states and maybe 100 different, 180 different cities. And I mean, he was all over the place and they saw him and they took him off the train, brought him into a church or a, a state hall, brought him back up onto the train. And this happened for a while. So that was such a big deal that this could happen. So that really put embalming on the map of something important. From there, we no longer had the home funeral. We had the funeral parlor. Boys were going to school, learning to embalm. This is something that happened. So pretty soon when people were using funeral homes, funeral homes realized they could make money by not only having the wood artisan create one casket, the person could make several. And then we could go ahead and charge different costs because of different emblems putting on them. Pretty soon we got into metals. Same thing with the cemetery industry. We weren't really using the churchyard or the backyard. Cemeteries became this really sort of sexy memorial park. 
And it became something where you could sell property and you could sell headstones and money to be made. So now we have the traditional burial, which was really all we did for a long time until somebody came up with the idea of, well, let's cremate. So cremation was that first sort of change in the funeral industry where people thought, oh, gosh, I don't know. That's against my religion. Um, that's nothing my neighbors have done. Oh, my goodness, you're burning a body. This seems crazy. So that was the first change that came around. So now there's a lot of funeral people like myself who are saying, hey, let's advocate for doing other things. So now in the last couple of years, not all that long, we have all 50 states where you can have a burial at sea. Now we have the state of Washington saying you can compost somebody. More and more states are allowing natural burials to happen. And now we've got this water cremation idea that's happening where a whole handful of states are saying, yeah, that sounds pretty environmentally sound. Let's do that. So it is kind of odd, like you're saying, Greg, that we went from a simple option at home to a corporation coming involved and saying, OK, we'll do it this one way. And now we have this myriad because what we're really trying to do is get back to basics. All we're trying to do is get back to how can we save money? How can a family get their closure and how can we save the planet? Yeah. So in, so in some ways you're saying like what seems like a crazy idea, there's precedent for, you know, changing the way that we do these sorts of services. Uh, and it's not really that crazy. Like we've done this before. We've gone through these things and we've had to kind of re-educate the public and say uh, what works for us right now. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, why is progress always a great thing? I guess because it starts with pro, P-R-O, which makes us think we're moving forward or this is, you know, a better choice. So we're learning in the United States in general, progress some ways has been regressive. We haven't always um, blossomed. We always haven't been moving in the great direction. So people are coming forward and saying, you know, I want to be an end-of-life doula. I want to be able to help people die. I want to make death positive. People are coming forward and saying, well, can't I open up a funeral home, and why do I have to have this large parlor and these expensive cars? Can't I do this out of my house and just sort of outsource things so I can help people save money? And we're finding more and more people. Would you believe it went from an old man's profession? Now it's about 65% women work in the funeral industry. The mortuary schools have most of the chairs filled by females. It's definitely becoming a much different playing field. Do you find that the work that you do is pretty accepted from mortuary schools or, or industry professionals or industry leaders? Um, yes. And that's a good, great question. Now, in the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, as well as there's 40 states in the U.S. where you don't have to hire a funeral home. You can do things your own way. And on the first page of my website, I just have that right there, that you do not have to hire a funeral home. You can do things your own way. Of course, there's a couple of funeral homes who said, oh, my gosh, why do you have that there? People are thinking they don't need to use us. So I think that there's a little bit of hubbub in the industry because it's getting more known to people. You can do things yourself. You can buy the casket off the internet. You can make your own urn. You can bring that 
Folger's coffee can that Papa used to drink his coffee from every day. You can do a lot more things like that. So, of course, if you're going to be burying somebody on your own property, you're not really giving a lot of money to a funeral home, nor are you giving any money to a cemetery. So there is a little bit of that, sure, where the discourse of the industry and mostly funeral industries, mostly corporations, have a scale of how employees are paid or by sales. It's just really a structure that way. It's a little bit tricky if people are buying caskets and making them elsewhere, and some funeral homes are really advocating for them to do that. Very quickly, because I, I really want to get to kind of your background and how you ended up in this uh, um, position where you're at today. But can you just kind of uh, reiterate uh, some of some of the, the, the lost resources that happen to traditional burials the way it is today? Um, you've made some interesting points in some of your, um, your, your TEDx talks. Oh, thank you. Yeah it's, yeah, it's definitely worth mentioning, especially in an age of this kind of like, there's always going to be enough of everything until there isn't. Sure. And I think numbers and images are something that stick really well with people. And it's important to know that with the 56,000 tons of the metals and the concrete and the steel that we put in the ground, that's under the ground every year, meaning your loved one if they're buried with this, this doesn't go to serve a purpose for anybody who's no longer alive above the ground. We could rebuild all of these failing bridges. We have so many of them. And would you believe that we could actually rebuild a Golden Gate Bridge annually for the amount of steel and concrete that's in the ground? I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge span, which hooks up two huge cities in California, Oakland and San Francisco, all of the millions and trillions of cars that drive over that bridge, we could actually be rebuilding one of those annually. I've talked about the embalming fluid, about how that is a million gallons in the ground. That is the same as a Olympic-sized swimming pool. And next time you are watching the Summer Olympics, take a look at that. Think, wow, that could be embalming fluid, and that could be something that happens annually. That's a really big deal. We also look at all the wood and the deforestation. We could be building so many houses with all of the wood we're taking off the trees to make caskets. All of the terrible fossil fuels that are being used, all of the just the, the man hours that are going to something that it's kind of like a one-shot purpose. It's something that's never being reconstituted or used again. So important to think about. Um, I have a TED Talk, which really goes into a lot more of the specifics, and it allows people to think about cremated remains when we're scattering them out into the ocean. Well, what's happening? It's going into our little pets are eating these cremains, and they're getting off in the wind, and it goes up to the air, and when it rains, it comes back down to the ground, and the little chickens are eating these things, and it gets back into our food supply. And so it's not really what we're thinking of. I think we think someone passes away. We want to find something. Either we think of economical or something our church likes or something Susie down the street did. And yeah, 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 I'll just go with that. Well, of course, when somebody dies, the most important thing to do is figure out your new normal and to get through what life is going to be like without this person you love. That's really what it's all about. But It'd be wonderful if everybody could use a shade of green. Everybody could think about something. And even if you feel like, nope, my family, we have done it this way our whole entire life, and it's relatively not the most environmental choice, 
let's put a shade of green in there. Maybe we can carpool to the cemetery. Maybe we can, rather than have cut flowers, we can have some of those sustainable chicken and hens or some of those flowers that and those plants that the succulents that take such little water that the family can take home with them. Maybe the memorial folders can be on recycled paper. I mean, it's on and on all the ways that we can have sustainable food and we can make this just a little bit more of a shade of green. Interesting. Very, very touching, actually. Probably should have done this at the beginning of this conversation, but I would love if, if you could maybe just tell us a little bit of your backstory and how you ended up where you are today. Sure. And I love how you mix it up because, I mean, really, we're com- you're coming at the interview with such a human point of view. It's just a matter of like, what is this you're talking about and what's going on? I think that's really quite perfect. So I was the kid. Well, thank you. Thank was... you. That was not by design, I, I have to admit. Oh. <laughs> well, it's fantastic. It seems like a very natural conversation because people really don't start chronologically. So it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, I was a kid at a little Catholic school in the 70s, and I was a strange little kid. I was a lonely girl. I had a mom, and I also had grandparents who lived in my family home as a child, and they all died within a very short period of time. And so from there, if anybody had a dog die or grandma die, they'd seek me out in the lunchroom and sit next to me, and I sort of became their person because I understood it was in the 70s everybody has a married mom and dad and I was you know this this, this strange little kid so I was leaving school a lot for funerals the Fournier family spent a lot more time in caskets versus out so it just became one of those things so I always knew that this was something that I probably was destined for. I would watch National Geographic or any sort of funeral scenes with very you know, keen interest. I was very interested in what was going on. I would walk through cemeteries. Um, I would often play funeral in the sandbox with different friends and my little Barbie cars. And I found that the, you know, the, the larger the line of my brother's Hot Wheels, the more impressive it was for the rest of the mourners. And we'd dig graves. And I wasn't really a morbid kid, but I was trying to get through my own grief. Anyway, so I ended up going on to a traditional college. My father had really worried and said, no, this is just a phase. You really shouldn't go to mortuary school. You'll you know, go to traditional college and something will happen where you'll become a broadcaster or teacher or what have you. But I knew pretty well this is what I wanted. So there was an opening in a cemetery and I became the night keeper. And I was, I guess, hooked. I mean, it wasn't a glamorous job, and it was definitely probably the scariest summer of my life. I'm living in a trailer in the far reaches of a cemetery being the night keeper, but I pretty much knew that's what I wanted to do. So I started this job back in 1990 when I was the living night keeper, and I just moved on from there and had different funeral homes and different jobs. And it's been a pretty fascinating ride. And I've gone from the corporate world where my job was to upsell people in their time of grief. And that was painful and horrible. And I was always in trouble with my casket sales because I just didn't do well. And, you know, I I was really um, very sad thinking, gosh, you know, I wanted to work in a funeral home and be there for people because I had a lot of sadness. And I thought, well, maybe I can be more human and help or hold people's hands. And I thought the job would be different. I didn't realize it'd be sales meetings and learning presentations and um, going and learning new names for fancy caskets. And, so it wasn't quite what I thought. So time went on. And when I was able to move out to boring Oregon and really do things my way, that was the big door that opened where I thought, okay, I've been given this gift to have this 
dilapidated, failing business out in the middle of nowhere and to sort of take it over and to run with it. And I really ran with it. And it sounds like your dad also played a pretty special role in your life growing up. Yeah, we were super, super close, very close. Um, I, I've drugged him to so many, you know, out of town. People have passed away and he's come with me to the hospitals and we've gone to different cemeteries and he's come with me. So he's kind of been a de facto junior funeral director as time has gone on here. But yeah, interesting fact about him. I'd been in this profession for about 25 years and I just got back from a green burial consortium in this little small town of Michigan. And I was saying to him, oh, you know, I had this layover in Chicago. You know, I thought of you and I got to see the South Side and that's where he's from. So we were talking about that and sort of out of the blue, he decides to tell me that he as a kid, you know, would spend a lot of time playing hide and seek at, in his family funeral home. And I, that wasn't really a throwaway line. He just sort of said it and sat there and looked at me. And <laughs> and I, I really didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And he went on to say that actually his cousin Frank, his parents, so it'd be the aunt and uncle of my dad, had a funeral home. And he spent a lot of time in that. And oh, by the way, not just you know, the aunt and uncle, but they've had three generations, you know, back from there, all were undertakers. And of course, I'm, you know, snorkel boggled because I just can't believe that this wasn't told to me. And, you know, my dad said, well, you know, growing up, I saw this and it was low paying. It was a lot of hours and it was hard on the family. And I just didn't think it was the career for you. So, you know, and then just failed to mention it for 25 years. Yeah. And he just kind of said, well, you know, yeah, I I guess I guess I never told you about it. So (laughs) it's just sort of a odd. Yeah, it really getting my head around that was really odd and strange. And so right away, I went and contacted the family back in the Midwest and found out the funeral home has now moved to Stevens Point, Wisconsin and got in touch with them. And, you know, it's been a really interesting to say, hey, guess what? You've got a family funeral director out here on the West Coast. And so it's been a little fun, of fun relationship to be able to. They had no idea. They had cousin Frank had no idea that his cousin went on to have a kid that, you know, had the same job. And so anyway, nonetheless, yeah, that was really weird. Does that in some way make you feel like the work you're doing is what you were destined to do? Yeah, it, it really does. I find that um, for in so many levels, I mean, one is because this is obviously in my blood and my heritage. I also am very proud of the fact I didn't just take over my parents' funeral home. I, I went out and seeked my own thing. It's like Nicolas Cage, you know, changing his name from Nicolas Coppola to Cage to try to make acting on his own. It was really sort of my own thing that I can look back and say, hey, but I've got some you know, ownership with heritage here. So that's neat too. And I got to tell you, when I'm in someone's yard and we're taking care of a natural burial and we are doing things, I think about that little girl who was trying to go through her own healing right there in the sandbox who created, who played a funeral and had the dolls line up a certain way and had the grave and had all these things. And I think, wow, I, I was creating my own destiny and I really had no idea. Absolutely fascinating. Very quickly, what, what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles you face in your work or in terms of education for public? What, what does that look like? 
I think it's important to ask questions, and I mean that in general, and I mean that as some as an employee. And a perfect case, an example, is how I actually got into burying people in their yards was about 15 years ago, I received a call from a family, and they had a loved one who lived on their communal property, and they wanted her to be buried there. And they came to me saying, we want to do this. Well, luckily, I had the foresight as a much younger woman to say, okay, um, I've not dealt with this. I'm not sure. I want to help you. Let's figure this out together. I'm very thankful I said that versus say, oh my gosh, that's not, no, 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 we don't do that and sort of politely hang up on them. I was really thankful that I thought, well, we'll figure this out. And we did. Um, a representative from that group of friends and myself, we called the county and we figured out what to do. And would you believe it was ridiculously easy to get a piece of paper that served as a permit, to get a doctor to sign a death certificate, to get a backhoe, to create the space. We had this beautiful fitting ceremony. And it was interesting how I always thought that working as an undertaker would be sort of my life calling. But once I had this funeral and it was so profound with the three sons catching fish and us feasting on that and all of us burning intentions in this bowl and just taking times to hold hands and sing. As I rode home in my Jeep from that service, I thought this is what I meant to do. I'm really meant to help families figure out how to do it their way. So to circle back to your question, I think it's just important for people in general to be true to themselves and ask for what they need. And I think if you are somebody working in some sort of a place, it's always okay to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me find out for you. Absolutely. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you feel like you would like to share with an audience that might be kind of encountering this for the first time? I would like people to know that anyone whatsoever can have a natural burial if they have an interest. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, I don't have acreage. Oh, my state doesn't allow that. Or, oh, my family would freak out. And those are all real general concerns. Did you know that you can still go to a standard cemetery and you can just ask them if they would allow the grave box to be turned upside down? So that way you're still touching the earth, but then they still have the soil contained the way they need. The casket that you're in, maybe it's something that you had built naturally, or it's something with non-toxic glue, something you bought off the internet. Maybe you're not going to be embalmed. Maybe you're going to be in natural biodegradable materials. You can do those things. And the story that I love to tell is when my beloved father passed away recently, we had a full funeral in the cathedral downtown Portland. He was dressed in the suit, the cotton suit he wore to my college graduation. He was in what looked like a standard traditional casket, even though it was a natural wood casket. He wasn't embalmed, but we went into the church. We had the Monsignor say the prayers. We were able to drive him across town to the cemetery, and we were able to take care of the burial in a green manner. So here's a full green burial for a very traditional religious man. So it can be done. 
It doesn't need to be something which is so out there. I think people will think, well, how am I going to be buried in a cardboard box when my conservative family is not going to be okay with this? Well, there's other things that can be done. Again, we talk about shades of green. I wrote a book called The Green Burial Guidebook, and it walks people through things like what shovel to use if you're digging, but it also talks about all the myriads of options that you can use and you can do, but also really just trying to make a plan talk about this, write things down, make it easy on you and the people around you to really get something as green as you want it to be. Uh, what's the best way for people to contact you? I am really open to phone calls. I'm really open to email. My funeral home phone number is out there in Boring, Oregon. I have the funeral home email at elizabeth at cornerstonefuneral.com. Uh, my website for work, cornerstonefuneral.com, has lots of information on there. It has a list of all 50 states and all the natural burial cemeteries, a lot of other information. And I have a personal website, thegreenreaper.org, because that's a funny nickname I received, the Green Reaper. Not the Grim Reaper, but the Green Reaper. And it's a, <laughs> it's I love a funny it. one. Sometimes I'm a little embarrassed by it because I think, oh gosh, people probably think I have a cape and I don't take this seriously. But other times I think, wow, you know, I was given that by a family and I really do adore that. So you really do own that. Yeah, yeah, it's fitting. It really is fitting. I love it. Elizabeth Fournier, author of The Green Burial Guidebook and others and funeral director of the Cornerstone Funeral Home. Elizabeth, thank you so much for visiting with me today. It has been an absolute, absolute pleasure having you on the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Thanks for what you do, Greg. Thank you. Bye, right. Greg. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Haddock. For more information about the ultimate gift of going green, please visit the Green Reaper herself, Elizabeth Fournier, at cornerstonefuneral.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a contribution to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash wildlandscollective. The work that we're doing here is only possible because of the gifts and generosity of people exactly like you. In fact, without it, none of this would be possible. Music in today's show by Blue Dot Sessions with that beautiful intro hymn by Edward McHugh, all via Creative Commons licensing.